It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, hey, hey. Greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting our little podcast experience. If you followed the podcast for any length of time, you'll know that we are a fan of the word tremendous. So much so that we made a t-shirt about it, and you should get your very own by going to ambiguouslyblind.com clicking on the merch button, and become a fan of the Tremendous Tea and support the podcast all in one motion. My guest for this episode is a fan of the word tenacious, which is another good word. Her name is Amy Lyle. She's an author, a comedian, an actor, and a screenwriter, as well as a mom. She's from Ohio. She's a Buckeye. I know a lot of things about people from Ohio and Buckeyes, so I really want to talk to Amy about the craziness of being from Ohio and Appalachian country and her path to authorship and publication, and about being a mom and raising girls in this wild world that we live in. So please help me welcome the unlucky but tenacious Amy Lyle to the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Thank you for having me and putting up with me because it was quite a journey for me to get here. Yeah, it was a journey, but you know, that's just kind of how life is. Nothing <laughs> nothing worthwhile in life is easy, right? Oh, that is so true. That's so true. But you got, as I told you, you got a glimpse into my life where nothing, nothing is easy for me. Like I'm never, nothing is easy and I'm never 100%. You know what I mean? Like I work so hard, like let's say getting ready and it's, you know, my hair, my outfit or my shoes, but there's always about 2% something's off. Like maybe spinach will be in my teeth, you know, like really, like I can't ever pull it together 100%. But I think a lot of people feel like that. I think a lot of people do too, and I certainly appreciate the the honesty or somebody that is uh, really, you know, just able to admit that publicly without having any sort of <laughs> issues with it. So I think that's I think that's a good thing too. Yeah, I've made a kind of a, a career, a second career of admitting things. I kind of feel like that too, and that's one of the mm-hmm. things I noticed about you when I bumped into you somewhere, on Twitter the, on the internet. Yeah, Twitter, mm-hmm. and got a pretty good glimpse of your sense of humor, which which I I dig. It's it's pretty good. Thank you. And as I was doing a little more digging about you, I noticed that uh, we discovered that we're both from Ohio. Small towns, very, very small towns in Ohio. Yeah, so I'm from Chillicothe. Mm-hmm. I'm from Marietta. Chillicothe was the first capital of, of the great state of Ohio and also the third for whatever reason. Um, Marietta is the gateway to the northeast or something like that. <laughs> That's their logo. It's beautiful, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's right there on the river. It's on the river, and there are still brick streets. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's really it's really pretty, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's an old city. It's you know it's way a very old city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's life like in Marietta as a youngster? Uh, you know what? I was a swimmer growing up, and so I had my head in the pool uh, at all times, and so that was pretty much my life was swim team when I was growing up. I mean, since I was five years old. Both my sister and I were competitive swimmers. Well, maybe that's the only thing there is to do in Marietta. Then, if I mean, unless you're that's don't one get of that's one of the only things. I did get in a lot of trouble later, but um, I, my head was still in the pool a lot of the time. I mean, not much as my head, John, my whole body, but you know what I mean. Yeah, that's kind of funny swimming just with your head in the water. <laughs> it's a funny visual. Exactly. Uh, you got in trouble. You got in trouble later, like later in middle school and high school, or. Yeah, mainly just in high school, just very rebellious, you know, kissed a lot of boys. We drank a lot of Boone's Farm, you know, small town stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. Boone's Farm was a yeah. big player in those days. Yeah, well, it really was. And you could buy Boone's Farm in the drive through beer barn <laughs> in Marietta, Ohio. You could, you don't even have to get out of your car and they would serve 16-year-olds Boone's yeah. Farm. I don't know yeah. about 16-year-olds, but I do know that we're in Chillicothe, there's a place called the Brew-Through. And it's a drive-through, yeah, beer place. So you could just didn't have to leave your car. I'm so glad. I'm so glad times are different now because our kids would never dream of. I'm not saying they're not going to drink, but like they are so much. We had a lot of drunk driving every year. You know, drunk driving accidents and stuff like that. It was just very different back then, and I'm so glad there's a lot of awareness about that now. And our kids are really good about that. We're like Uber or call us or. You know, you're not going to get in trouble for having alcohol at a party, a little bit of alcohol, even though they're underage, they shouldn't be doing that. But the 
bigger thing is we don't want you to be unsafe or put yourself in an unsafe situation. So yeah. And it's really easy yeah. for you as the parent to, to let them know that you didn't do that type of stuff and that that's not something they should be doing now. Right. Especially after you've written some books and maybe divulged some of those details publicly. Right. So what's the balance there? Do, can your kids read yet? They can read, but, um, so, but they, I, my older girls read the book. My son read his chapter in the book and at first he was mad, but then he brags like I'm in chapter. Uh, and my, my youngest daughter, she was, um, she was like kind of too little to be in any trouble when I wrote the book. Um, and so there's not a lot about her in there, but they, they like it. I mean, my, my husband is usually the brunt of my jokes and my fiascos. And he was very upset about some things, but now he just rolls with it. And he's also anything in stand up. about half my, my routine has to do with him and his ridiculousness in our relationship. Yeah. And you're also a comedian. So I am. that stuff, I mean, I guess we'll just for, for everybody's protection here, we'll just say it's all made up anyway, right? Yes. It is all like when I, from my books, I say, you it's know, fiction. some of this is true. Uh, but, you know, most of this is true, but some of it's lies. So I can't be held, you know, exactly. liable for anything. Exactly. So you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm a local comedian. So I've never like, tr I don't know if you know anything about being a comedian, but when you start out being a comedian, you make like $75 unless you're a headliner. And even um, my one of my good friends is a professional comedian for 25 years and his best gig was on a cruise ship, believe it or not, because you had free room and board and it was really fun. And you would just, you would, you know, be on one cruise ship for a week and then you'd switch and you go to another one and he loved it. But, um, and so that was actually a, the best paying gig that he ever had. And, um, but other, t but even as a professional comedian, you might make $300 and then get a hotel room. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's just like a really, unless you are, uh, I, I guess in hindsight, I should have started like, doing that when I was, you know, right out of college or something. And when you don't have any money anyway, and that would have been a dream job to be a professional stand-up comedian, but I didn't start that till later in life. And it's just a super, super fun hobby. Yeah. Well, there's a little bit of a buildup to it. So you do it because it's fun. Yes. And because you get to have fun with people. Yeah. It's really fun. And it's an outlet for all the craziness in your life. You know, that's most of the comedians that I really admire are similar to me where they had crazy childhoods. And that is a great way to deal with your troubles, you know, is uh, to, to make light of it. And, and people really, really relate to it when you have, you know, you know, marital, funny marital issues or your, you know, your kids are driving you crazy and, you know, all that stuff. It's like, it makes for great material. So it's, it's like a win-win, like the audience laughs and can relate and they feel better about their problems. And then you are, it's like, talking to a good friend but 200 of them and hearing them laugh and knowing that they relate to you is so cathartic it's like I've never ever I've never done drugs I just that's just not my thing mm -hmm. but I feel like that's the closest I've ever been is like it's like such a high like you're in a room and it's dark and it's packed and you you created something from scratch and then people are love it and it's just like it's a magical thing stand-up comedy so I guess the uh, the comedy thing kind of goes back to your roots. You did also did a, a TED or a TEDx talk, um, which was kind of set in a comedy. Uh, it was kind of a, I don't know, tell me about that. That was kind of a comedy. Well, routine, yeah, right? I, um, okay, so we talked about me. It, it's it's um, nothing is easy for me. So I had this bucket list item of doing a TED talk because I love TED talks. I listen to them all the time. I listen to TED radio where they take a topic and they do clips, you know, from TED talks. Like I'm a TED talk junkie. And if people don't know what a TED talk is, it's um, technology, entertainment and design. And they're like these amazing talks that could be about prison reform or the talk could be from somebody famous into so like one of my favorite TED talkers is Brene Brown. I really, I love her talk about vulnerability, but anyway, so I was very inspired by all these TED talks. I'm like, what if I did a TED talk? It was like a, a bucket list item. So I applied to 100 TED talks and I got one. Like they, they, you read that sometimes it takes 300 applications. So I've filled out a hundred applications and I landed, um, uh, Beacon street, Boston TED talk, but it was COVID. So you had to record it 
uh, and some people just recorded it on their phone, like in their office or something. And mm-hmm. just, it isn't, that wasn't, I don't know. It didn't have a very Ted talk feel. So one of my buddies, Jamie Bendel, who owns the punchline here in Atlanta, I said, um, Jamie, can I please, um, use the punchline to film this? He goes, Oh yeah, it's, you know, nothing's going on here. Sometimes movie scenes are filmed there during the day, but he's like, you know, it's really a, a night venue. He's like, you have it all day. What do, when do you need it? And then, um, another buddy of mine owns a production company and I don't know how much this would have cost if I had to hire him, John, they're probably like at least five grand. Cause it was like booms and lights and, you know, cameramen and, you know, sound editing and all that stuff. And so he donated his time and material and, um, filmed it for me. Yeah. It's a pretty well done production. Thank you. And so that was called finding the funny and a crumb and the crummy. And although it had some funny moments in it, it was really a more serious talk about, how when things don't go your way, if you can reflect on them and try to see the funny and start to develop the muscle of seeing the funny in your life and in the world, that you will be a happier person and you'll be able to cope. And to be able to be a little bit self-depreciating or be honest about your you know, your weaknesses and the things that you're, your failings of how that actually draws you know, people to you and how perfection is, is very, very much a repellent. So that's, that's what the, it was. And there were some, you know, there were some real studies in there. Like, um, there was a Vietnam study about prisoners of war coming back and this group had very little mental illness. And they're like, what's going on? And a common thread was the soldiers accredited it to humor. And, um, they had these, you know, obviously it wasn't funny. They were being abused and horrible food and the conditions and everything. But when they asked them about it, the guy's like, well, at first, I didn't think it was very funny, <laughs> which made me laugh because, of course, he's in prison. Yeah. It's not funny. And then um, when they asked him about the type of humor, he was, you know, another guy's like, well, you know, it was, you know, you yeah, just had to be there kind of humor. But the point was that just by looking at each other and, you know, in this ridiculous situation, they accredited, they accredited, they're like, I had a sense of connection and belonging and knowing that I'm not in this alone and being able, and so it was just a remarkable study. And there was another study about breast cancer patients about how laugh therapy and, and, um, and how to get through that. So, um, so what, you know, is a personal story, but it was also based on a lot of science of how powerful, um, humor can be for people. Yeah. And that personal story, I guess, is kind of where you maybe draw your mindset of, of finding the funny and the crummy and just kind of your, your approach to life. And, um, I mean, I agree with it. I think you have to laugh at just about anything, and um, laughter is is often appropriate. I mean, there's sometimes where it isn't, I guess, but um, you you really do have to find the funny and the crummy. So I think uh, I, I appreciated the the concept there, and I I think the title is is fitting, especially uh, with your personality. Well, thank you. And um, since things are hard for me, the the reason why you do a TED talk is because. Each of these venues has hundreds of thousands of followers normally, like TED Talk Beacon Street, you know, is huge. And and so that's why you do that, because you well, you want to get your message out to the world. Right. So the one that I got into, I wasn't getting any hits on my TED Talk. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? Well, then I found out I'm not trying to pick on them. I'm just being honest. They were two or three years behind of loading any of their talks. Wow. Yeah. So it went on like the YouTube page of TED Talks, but like, you know, the people that are that are speaking for Beacon Street, like yeah. those talks aren't being distributed to their hundreds of thousands of followers via their newsletter or anything like that. So, I mean, that's fine. It's just like another thing for me where it's like, oh, I, you know, all that glitters is not gold. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get this TED Talk. I'm going to get a million hits. I'm going to make all this money as a paid speaker. I'm going to do workshops on humor across the planet. And then it's like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the unlucky part. But, but that's the, tenacity, the, part. the tenacity is what, what keeps it going, though, right? The tenacity keeps it going, yeah. And then it's just like you just have to look back and laugh at that. And, and would I do it again? Yes. Was it an amazing experience? Yes, even though I didn't get the real Beacon Street live on stage TED experience, I still got, you know, to cross something off my list. And it was, I felt like it was, um, I still feel good about the message. And so even though a million people haven't heard it, the people that have heard it, you know, really liked it. So that's, 
makes you feel good. Yeah. And I guess while we're on this topic, uh, people can find it. I think it's on YouTube probably, but it's also your website, amylyle.me. Is that right? Yes. Dot com was taken. So it's amylyle.me. Yeah. But if you go to the Big Ted and you put in um, Amy Lyle, it will come up. Or if you go to the YouTube TED Talk and put in Amy Lyle, it will come up. Or if you just type in Google Amy Lyle TED Talk, it will come up. Yeah. That's how I found it a couple of times. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mm-hmm. think people should check it out. It's, it's worthwhile. Thank you. I would, I would, I would love if people listen to it. I think nine people have listened to it. No, I'm just kidding. I think a couple thousand. <laughs> well, let's, <laughs> let's make it a couple thousand and four or five. Cause that's about all yeah. the people that listen to this podcast anyway. So <laughs> every, everyone counts. <laughs> Uh, okay, so you were in your TED talk. You're kind of talking about your childhood, and so just to bring it back to Ohio, just a little bit. You went to Ohio State, the Ohio State University. Excuse me. I did. If you grew up in a really, really small town, you're like, what would be the opposite of the tiniest town in the world? The biggest university in the world. So I was very attracted to that. Yeah, was that a pretty good experience? Yeah, it wasn't the experience that our kids are having today in college that your that your daughters will have in college because. I came from a, such a small town. My parents had not gone to college. And so I didn't really know and I didn't get invested and get, get kind of like um, involved as I should have been, but just, you know, you went to college. So just being away from your parents and figuring things out from your, you know, on your own and, you know, jobs and stuff like that. So that was a great experience. But um, I know that my children have had way better college experiences than I did just with their like community involvement and all that stuff. But it was great. I mean, I would recommend Ohio state to anyone. It was a great school with great resources that I feel like I didn't really tap into as much as I could have. Yeah. I feel like I probably would have gone to Ohio state had I continued my residency in Ohio, but it it just didn't work out that way. I had lots of friends that went there. It's a great school, obviously. But I normally think of Ohio state for athletics, you know, Mm-hmm. That's kind of offensive, but often, I hear where you're going with yeah. that. Often mm-hmm. uh, football, you know. Sometimes so, football. So, so you were there during the... Uh, <laughs> the Michigan loss years. We, we lost to Michigan, I think, every year that I was there. Now we just pummel them, but back then we lost. It was so sad. Well, that's what got the coach fired. You were there... Uh, who, who's the coach? Good gracious. I wasn't there back when Woody Hayes was there. No, no, not was Woody. Like in the 60s. Um, oh. This was... Um, John, what's his name? Um, the coach. I don't know. I was there for the academics, John. I'm just kidding. I don't <laughs> remember the coach's name. I was there for the kegs and eggs that we had Michigan weekend. Kegs and eggs, huh? So what happens during kegs and eggs? It's exactly as it sounds. You have kegs and you eat eggs. It's like a breakfast thing during Michigan. You start very early in the morning. So, you know, to get prepared for the Michigan sure. game. Yeah. Well, there's a lot that goes into it, I'm sure. And that was during the, the John Cooper era. And those uh, those losses to Michigan were ultimately what did him in, I believe. But uh, that's... I know you could win all year and lose to Michigan and your supporters were very, very unhappy. It's really a big deal to, to beat them. You know, it's a it's a hundred year old rivalry. Yeah, it's and it's great. It's It's one of the best rivalries in sports, I think. It really is. But, you know, I would be happy if my kids went to Michigan. And, you know, it's a fabulous school. So I don't have anything against Michigan now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So all the kegs and eggs are behind you. You walk across the, uh, you walk across the stage, you get a diploma and you go out into the world and you're thinking, Mm -hmm. I just love Ohio so much. I'm going to stay here forever. Is that what happened? (laughs) Well, actually, I didn't I didn't mind Ohio at all, and I probably would still be there, but I had a giant boyfriend breakup. Mm. Yep, and so I was like, guess what? I'm out of here. And my parents had gotten divorced, and my mother had moved to Atlanta. They got divorced, actually, many, many years earlier. But anyway, my mother had, had been living in Atlanta, and so I was like, this is, this is just a sign. So I packed up my Honda Accord, and I moved to Atlanta. Just like that, huh? Just like that. Never look back, John. Because of a boy. Because of a very, very handsome Italian boy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you're happy with that decision? Yes. I love Atlanta. I mean, it's, I love Atlanta. It's, we're right between, you know, a couple hours to the ocean and a couple hours to the mountains. It's great. And there's a lot going on here. And it's 
great place to, I mean, I don't live downtown, but I mean, I would, it's very expensive to live downtown, but, um, I live in the burbs of, um, Atlanta and I love it. And so you, uh, after school, you, you get into the working world. I got into the working world of this, uh, staffing and I did that for 15 years like recruiting. I was a recruiter. Mm-hmm. And then later I was a corporate trainer for um, one of the largest staffing companies in the world. Best job. That was like such a fun job. But you felt like uh, that wasn't for you, I guess, because I'm, I'm interested. You, you've written some books, which is uh, basically how I, how, I, how I ended up finding you also. So yes. Yeah. Well, what happened was I was doing that and then I got married. Like, well, I got to, I got married and then I was with my um, husband for 13 years, part, you know, part of that dating, part of that married. And then we got divorced and then I got remarried, you know, several years later I got remarried and my a second husband had three kids and they were little too. They were like eight, 10 and 12. And I had a daughter that was like four or five at the time. And, um, I, I, that's a lot of kids and you have three kids that, that and so yeah. it is and so you know how kids are it's like oh this one goes to violin lessons and this one rides a horse and this one does swim team and this one goes tennis and so and i was traveling half the time so my husband's like would there be have you ever considered staying home and you know being a mom you know being and i was like oh i've never done that that'd be super fun um it was not super fun but um you know, that's, that's okay. It, it, it was just, that's just not for me. I, I needed to work and do something. So to kind of um, negotiate that, I started doing creative things. Like one of the first things I did was I started, um, I auditioned for an acting position with my church and it's the, it's a giant church, North Point Ministries. And John, I auditioned and they're like, you know, don't call us. We'll call you. It was very <laughs> like um, American Idol style. Yeah. They're like, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like, you know, they didn't even crack a smile. And then I called them back and literally they're like, mm, we told you not to call us. We'll call you. And then two weeks later they called me and I found out that I was the only person that auditioned. <laughs> and they had to have that position filled. And so I got that job that as an actor and I did it for 10 years. Huh? I think I know, they, were every Sunday. Playing, they were probably just playing hard to get. I'm sure that mm-hmm. you were probably the no. best qualified. No, I wasn't, but I got better and better over the years. But anyway, so when I started doing this little acting role, it was comedic and the little skits were so funny. I was like, who writes these? And they're like, Oh gosh, do you want to write them? And I was like, yes. And so then I became a, a, that was a volunteer position, the acting, but then I became a paid writer and it was so fun. Like here I was a, a pay, getting paid to be a playwright. Like who would, who would think yeah. such a thing? And it was, it was just the best job. It was so fun. And so, you know, I'll fill in, like if somebody's, you know, on maternity leave or something, I'll fill in and write for them. And I would still do it today if they asked me, it was, it was so great. But anyway, so then that led to me, yeah, this is, I'm going to try to get there as fast as possible to being an author. So then I got the bug. I'm like, oh, gosh, I, I really love dialogue and writing. It's just I'm going to write a screenplay. Well, actually, I've been on the lake trip with a bunch of girls, and half of us were stay-at-home moms, or, or and half half of people were working moms. And I kind of had the perspective of both, right, because I'd just recently been a mm-hmm. working mom. And it was so funny, like the, the perceptions and – and the misnomers about those two groups, but it was really comedic. And I was like, this would make a great movie. I'm going to write a movie about it. And so I did. And then um, long story short, when I, when I tried to get representation, this lawyer, this LA lawyer was like, you can't just waltz into Hollywood. Like you're nobody. You don't have any money. You don't know anyone. I'm not going to represent you. What are you crazy? You need to write a book or something. And I was like, what, what would, what would I write a book about? And he's like, write what you know. And literally like God was like, Oh, and he's, it came to my mind. And I said, I have had a lot of failures. And so I wrote that night, I started working on it. I wrote the book of failures and I wrote like, Oh my gosh, I don't know, 50, like 60, 70,000 words. And it's like little, um, you know, little stories. It's not a novel. It's, you know, it's like short stories. And then we, you know, I had two editors and we cut it down and I don't know, just under 50,000 words. And it did, it did really well. And then people started writing me saying, Oh, if you think that story's funny about dating or being married or your mother-in-law, let me tell you this story. And those stories were so funny that I asked those people, I was like, Hey, is there any way I could have the story and change the story 
and not give you any money for the story? And they said, sure. And so then I wrote the second book called We're All a Mess, It's Okay. And that's a collection of other people's disasters. Mm. Yeah. So that's how I got in the, the author business because I was trying to get a movie deal. So you're telling me that the, the movie was not, wasn't going uh, as fast as, as you would have liked it to. You got some advice to write basically. I had, a, to get on, I had to be searchable on the internet. Like you have to quote, be, you know, get some press. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. you wrote the, now tell me the, the title of the book again. It's, 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 uh, what's the Amy, I wanted to make sure people knew that I had problems. So it was the Amy Benegar chemist Lyle book of failures, but they can just look up the book of failures. Yeah, and we'll have a link to it on the um, the website for the podcast as well, too. But yeah, and it's been number one on Amazon over and over again. Like it's, and I'm in a really hard category. I'm in like humor and entertainment, and I don't know if you'll notice if you go to humor and entertainment, my category, it's like Trevor Noah, Tina Fey. It's all professional comedians, and then me. I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's Jenny Lawson, like she's really famous. It's Jen Mann. And so it really, it just makes my heart swell when I see like these books are frequently bought together. And it's like my book and Jen Mann's book or my book and Samantha Irby or my book and Jenny Lawson. Like that just makes me so happy. Now, do you hang out with any of those comedic writers? No, but you know what? I do have that little, I, I do have a talk show, you know, on UI Media. And um, so Jenny Lawson, the New York Times, you know, four time New York Times bestselling author, um, came on my show and I started crying. <laughs> <laughs> I was so emotional because I love her so much. And she let me interview because I write for a little magazine. She let me interview for that. I feel like we're friends now, John, me and um, Jenny Lawson. Well, that's good. Yeah, she's super nice. So tell me about the show you're on. Okay, so I, when I wrote the book and I started getting. By the way, I was my own press person. So I, I literally like took these funny pictures of me and like these crazy outfits from, from church. And then I t- took some shots of me doing stand-up comedy and I pushed out like radio stations and talk shows and newspapers and magazines. I'm like, Hey, here's a feel good story about somebody changing their life after 40. Like that was kind of my angle and you know, the book of failures and, you know, starting a new career, creating fame out of failures, whatever. I had all different kinds of angles. And I started getting picked up by locally by, you know, magazines, stuff like that. And I got picked up by WXIA, which is an NBC affiliate here in Atlanta on the show called Atlanta and company. And they interviewed me and then they're like, Hey, we have this segment at the end of the show. It's kind of a filler. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it might be 10 minutes. It might be 14 minutes. It just depends. It's like literally a filler on the show and it's called real talk. And they're like, could you, come at the end of the show could you stay and be on that panel I was like sure and then after that John they invited me on the show every other Tuesday for three years hmm. and the only reason I stopped doing it is because they don't have the show anymore in the studio because of COVID they're they're doing like you know kind of zooming in from their houses but anyway so I was on that show and then another little network it was like oh gosh you're so funny would you ever host for us like they asked me to be a guest and I'm like oh we're out of town would you host for us I'm like sure and they're like, oh, would you ever want to do your own show? And I was like, yeah. And so then I write, and I'm the co-host of the show called In the Burbs with Amy and Gina. It's so fun. I love it. And it's just like a very light talk show. It's an hour. And we have, um, well, I told you, we had Jenny Lawson on there. We also had um, from the Queen's Gambit, the twins. I don't know if you watched the Queen's Gambit, but the twins on the Queen's Gambit. One of the twins, Russell uh, Dennis, I think his last name is, he came on the show. He was delightful. We also had the producer and creator of We Are the Champions from Netflix, Brian Davis on the show. So anyway, I just love it because I get to reach out to all these famous people that I like and be like, hey, you want to come on my show? Yeah. And then some of them do. And then, we have local, and then we have local people too, like local writers or local business people or, uh, you know, I don't know, women's issues, things like that. Yeah, so all this started basically from the the staying up all night writing 50,000 words about the book of failures. Is that, is that kind of the, the genesis here? Yes. And the whole time I was just trying to get a movie deal. Amazing. So I know. Go, go back Weird. just a little bit deeper into this. So you, you do all this writing and you've got yes. all this, these words on the, on the screen or paper or whatever. And where do you go with it from there? Cause I mean, the reason I'm asking is uh, I'm a, I guess you could say a aspiring author. I have some things I'd like to, to yeah. write about, but 
I don't really know where to, uh, like once you have all this stuff, where do you take it? Like, how do you, who do you know who to trust or where do you, where do you go with that? How, how does it work for you? Okay. So I had a referral from my friend Rodney Henson about an editor. So that's really, really important. You want to get a content editor. And my, my story is a little bit different because my book is short stories. And so that's much easier to edit and you just kind of put them in sections, right? Or or you put them chronologically, you know what I mean? Like it's not very hard to organize. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a novel, then you would want to find an editor that, you know, really is specialized to doing novels. Does that answer your question? Like if that's, you just start writing stories and you don't have to write your novel. If you want to do a novel in order, you write what you, the, the most exciting story to you. Maybe that's at the, at the beginning, maybe that's at the end. You just start writing it and then you, it, it just starts to fill in as needed. People make it much harder than it is really. Yeah. Me included. I think that uh, I have a tendency to overthink things too. It's more like just, yeah. just kind of go with the flow and yeah. And see what happens kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Just get out and do not think about word count. Authors get obsessed with word count because in all honesty, nobody wants to buy. Have you ever bought a book off of Amazon that, and you get it and it's only 100 pages? It really, you feel gypped. Like, I don't want to pay $20, and it, it could be the best book ever, but I don't want to pay $20 for 100 pages. So if your book is 100 pages, you better have short book in there because I'm going to be angry. <laughs> so as a rule, 50,000 words is kind of a minimum. But you can you can read about all this if you know there's lots of books about or podcasts. Oh, yeah. I would recommend highly recommend Dave Dave Chesson. I love him about publishing and word count and everything. But um, also the marketing and all that stuff. So anyway, don't but don't be obsessed with you. You're just gonna have to write more. But people that like describe every single thing and it, it, long flowery sentences that's annoying. I don't I don't want to write it. I don't want to read it. But I think that's because I'm a comic and and uh, a movie writer. And so it's kind of like if you can say it in three, don't say it in four. That's kind of the rule. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So but anyway, so that's my that's my only advice I'll give to you is is don't use words just to fill up the page to get word count because you're going to annoy the reader. Just tell the story how you want it to be. And then if you're done telling the story and only have 30,000 words, then you got to tell more stories. Yeah. And, and speaking of the stories, what, I don't know how many, how many little stories are in the book of failures? Is there like, I, I maybe a hundred, maybe, maybe, a, maybe a hundred stories. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know. Do you have any, I don't want to, you know, not sell any books because you're going to give it all away, but do you have some favorites in there? One of my favorite stories in the book is about falling down. Um, when I went up, one of my first jobs out of college, I worked at this, uh, accounting for a bunch of accountants for RT, this group called RTM and this beautiful office space with, um, these very beautiful staircases. And they had, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful office with maybe like marble or granite, you know, on the floor. And the second story you could see up there cause it was like glass. And this was the era. You have to think this is like 1990. 1994 and this was do you remember i'm older than you but do you remember melrose place by chance yeah, it was like sure. a soap opera okay so i was channeling because I, I had a small i came from a small town so i couldn't channel anyone from there so i was channeling uh amanda woodward you know from from melrose place so i had her exact suits on i mean you know it's like shoulder pads and then like short skirts and stilettos and you, you of course pantyhose because you you were required to wear pantyhose in 1993 in a corporate office. And anyway, I was going on the steps to get a report because we didn't have the internet or email back then. And somebody asked me a question and I turned and I had that high heel on. It got caught in the carpet and I fell very violently down all the steps. I fell so hard down the steps. Like I fell 15 steps and there was a landing and I fell so hard. I continued to fall. Mm. Yikes. Yeah. And then at the bottom, my short skirt had like rolled up almost to my armpits and my <laughs> thigh high pantyhose had like rolled down to my ankles. And, um, and there were, there were people coming to tour the building. The company did, um, they own like hundreds of restaurants. And so they had store managers and district managers and they were coming in for a tour. And I was, I was literally, I fell at their feet with my, Oh, and this is a true story. I had underwear on a pair of underwear and they had a picture of a hamburger and it said happy buns on my <laughs> underwear and you could see my underwear. And that's a true story. And I hobbled all the way to my car only to realize that I forgot my car keys. Cause so then I had to hobble all the way back 
get my car keys. And I was going to quit. This is the best part of the story, which I don't even think I put into the book, which is so embarrassing. So you just read the book. She has to tell me. So the best part of this story is after this happened, the fiasco, and I was in the elevator getting – I should have gone in the elevator before, right? It was faster going the steps. Um, a woman on the elevator – maybe it was my building. Anyway, I was in an elevator, and the, uh, she, this woman was helping me twist my skirt around. And she goes, um, are you okay? Yeah, yeah. And then she goes, did you chip your teeth? And I said – I did not chip my teeth. And I just started laughing because I knew that she had had a fall where she chipped her teeth. And she did. She had a fall way more horrific than my, my fall. And she really chipped her teeth. And so in that moment, I went from feeling totally humiliated. Like when I get my car keys or whatever, I'm never going back to that job. Like I'm, I'm never going, I'm going to quit because I was so humiliated. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, she completely lifted that burden from me because she had had a fall worse than mine. And she, she made me feel great. And then everybody in the office is like, oh, I fell down. Like everybody had a, had a falling down story. Yeah. So the, the comedy, uh, the comedy heals yeah. everything. It did. It instantly, it, she instantly made me feel better by telling me she chipped her teeth when she fell. I can't remember where she fell in. I think concrete was involved, but anyway, um, that's life. Like just saying like, Hey, that happened to me too. Or I understand how you feel. It completely helps the other person heal out of that moment. So yeah. powerful. And the fact that you were the basically the opening act for the touring group coming in, that's quite <laughs> exactly. a difficult act to follow. I'm sure the rest of the time yeah. is not as exciting. I know. I wonder if they tell that story to this day. Like, oh, one time I went to RTM and that girl who was dressed like Amanda Woodward from Melrose Place saw <laughs> the steps. Now, Amanda <sighs> Woodward, I mean, I am familiar with Melrose Place. That's but... Heather Locklear. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. I don't look like Heather Locklear. I was just dressed like Heather Locklear. Yeah, I gotcha. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one of the stories in the the book of failures. That's one of the stories. Yeah, there's all kinds of stories. There's stories about my husband, like when my husband catches me doing something wrong, I try to distract him. Like I always use his razor, like on my legs, because <laughs> razor is so much better than mine. But that's really terrible, and it, then it, I guess it cuts his face afterwards. But I keep doing it, even 11 years into our marriage, because sometimes I just need the sharper razor. And so he'll ask me if I use his razor, I'll just lie to his face, John, be like, no, or. I'll say no, and then I'll start, like, accusing him of something. I'll be like, did you um, go to speech as a child? And he'll be like, what? I'm like, well, when you're asking me that, you're kind of, like, having a little bit of a list there. And he'll be like, don't change the subject. You always do this to me. I'm like, see, like, there when you said subject, it's like your teeth are too close. Your, You know, your tongue is too close to your teeth. Like, you're kind of doing a sound. And he's like, stop twisting this. Stop twisting this around on me. Have you used my razor? And so I just try to like distract him, mm-hmm. you know, enough to get out of the room so he can't. Because I don't want to ever say like, yeah, I used it. And he told me 50 times not to. Yeah, I feel like the there were a lot of uh, intimate stories in there about some personal <laughs> stuff that you really exposed <laughs> about yourself. So I, I hope that yeah. some of those were the were exaggerations or things. But there, I have read the book. I did find it. I did find it very, uh, very interesting. So, uh, and it's also available in uh, audio, audio format for on Audible as well. So, yes, it is. Angela Massey read it. She did a great job. Does she do a pretty good job with the voices? That does she have your husband's voice down pretty well? I don't remember her doing my husband's voice, but I remember her doing my OBGYN is just a white American, you know, just straight up white girl, and she did the voice as an Indian doctor. And I said, I just thought that was humorous. And so I kept it. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not being racist. I, it just, the way she did it was really cute. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And there, that's an interesting tor- story too. Again, there are some really fascinating details about your life in that book, which are, um, I mean, you just got to laugh and I certainly, I certainly appreciate the concept of laughing. So. Yeah. And I have a great life. I think some people have, um, you know, you know, I'm so lucky to have hundreds of reviews and, you know, 90% of the reviews are fantastic. And people, I mean, if you look at me, I look like a person that lives in the suburbs. That's just, that's what I look like. You know what I mean? It's like, if you saw the cover of the book, you'd be like, that girl lives in the suburbs. That's a lady that lives in the suburbs. Like, I don't look like when it says the book of failures, I don't look like somebody who lives in the basement doing meth. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I look like a woman that lives in the suburbs. And some people have complained. They're like, um, you don't really have any problems. I mean, book of failures, you know, like, like you, you have this life, you know, you're married. And it's just like, 
I, I don't know. In, in hindsight, I, I guess I would have uh, told some, some things differently or left some things out um, because they could be construed as, um, I don't, I don't know. It's just people took offense of like a, it was like a socioeconomic thing. And I was just like, I put in there that I put my pants and fell on the steps and you want to what? and you're criticizing me because I went on this vacation. Like what? So that, um, lesson learned. I, I was very careful of what I put in a uh, wall unless it's okay. Yeah. But I also think that sometimes people can misunderstand things. It, it's a comedic book. It's supposed to be funny. Yeah. So maybe even the word failure can be, you know, maybe there's some. Yeah. And somebody goes, somebody goes, I'm not even following this character development or the storyline. And I'm like, it's not a novel, sir. (laughs) I'm like, so I do want to give you some other advice and any other listeners that are thinking about writing a book. And that is, they will come for you. So if you're selling a a lot of books, you know, um, you can bask in the fun of somebody loving your book and connecting with your book and writing you a great review or reaching out to you and telling you a funny story or that your story really resonated them or inspired them or whatever. And so I had that experience of people saying, Oh my gosh, this was happening in my life. And I was crying and so upset. And then I read your book and I started laughing and thank you because it gave me a relief from the day or from the moment or whatever. And that was so rewarding, but just be warned that people will come out, you come out, you're just catching at the wrong time or something really, really bad's going on in their life. And they are going to misinterpret something that you said, and they're going to say terrible things about you. And you just have to let it go and not be offended and take it personally. If they say something constructive, you can learn from it and fix the issue, right? Or learn as you move forward. But some of it's just, they're just very unhappy people and you can't hate them. You just have to feel sorry for them. You know, that's, that's kind of the internet. Um, yeah, era. It's so easy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that goes for anything, right? It doesn't matter if you're a podcaster or you're a comedian or you're a writer or a singer or songwriter. If you put yourself out into the public, people um, feel like they have the right to, you know, say what they want. And they do have the right to say what they want. Say it. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. And speaking as you're now that you're doling out advice, uh, we talked earlier about <laughs> about kids. And oh, uh, as you mentioned, too, um, I have three, um, three children also. And mine are all pretty small still, but they are all girls. And um, I have a I have a healthy amount of fear and um, and respect for the next 10 to 15 years of my life and what that's going to be like with with um, girls and hormones and yeah. all of those types of things and uh, boys and yeah. just all the fun that that is right in front of me. So what type of advice would you give a, a dad in that situation? Okay, so my husband and I have very, very different parenting styles. So I'm only going to share my parenting style. So I was very... Um, careful about what I'm going to get on somebody about, right? Because so, some things just don't matter. It's kind of like, is this going to you know, matter? But there are, there were, are, are some things that I um, was, I guess you would use the word strict about, like, I don't want you to lie to me, no, no, no cheating, no lying, no stealing, that kind of stuff. But then like, as a mom, and some people will argue with this, it's like, I think it's reasonable as a parent this is my house that I bought and I'm allowing you to live in this space. And so I'd like you to keep the space somewhat tidy. You know what I mean? And so my rule was like, Hey, if you want to have a sleepover or whatever on Friday, you have to have your room picked up on Friday. And also is it going to be picked up to the, to the, to the way that I want it to be picked up? No, but could, could it hit 70%? You know what I mean? Like I'm reasonable with my expectation of what her picked up, versus mine is. And then if it wasn't done, then you really have to hold your ground and say, well, remember we have this, you know, we have this agreement that, you know, you're going to keep your room tidy. And if you do, then you will get the privilege to go sleep over or have somebody sleep over. But if you don't do what our agreement is that we've agreed to, to take care of your space, then, then you're not going to have somebody over. So guess what? You can, you can clean it now and we can try again tomorrow. You can have somebody over tomorrow. So I really tried to give my daughter, like, here's, 
the, the choices that you have. And then here are the rewards for those choices. And here are the consequences of those choices. And um, I really, really, really tried to stick by those. Like, like a very, a very big one was um, college education. I was like, Hey, if you're not going to invest in your education and get A's and B's because in, in, in the state of Georgia, you get the hope scholarship. If you have, you know, 3.0 and anyway, she ended up going out of state, John, but that's, she did get a scholarship. But if you're not going to invest in yourself, then I'm not going to invest in you. So I'm not going to pay for your college education if you're not going to work hard. Now, if you have a, if you have an issue, then I'm going to get you a tutor. Like she was terrible at languages. So we had to get a Spanish tutor. Like I'm going to help you. But, you know, to our, if I think you're capable and the teachers are saying you're capable of getting A's and B's, then I'm really expecting you to work on your grades. Did you get a C? That's OK once in a while. You know what I mean? But I'm and, and then I really stuck to that. And I really would not have paid for her college education if she did if she didn't um, come up with her into the bargain. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's my advice. It's just like everything else is kind of like I share with you. And if you try to be. um you're never going to drink alcohol and you're never going to do that. I really um, wanted to talk about alcohol and the impact, um, sexual assault. I mean, that's real um, driving, you know, uh, the impact of your brain. You know, I wanted to give her all the science and the facts and the social stuff of, of alcohol, but ultimately, you know, she's, she's older. She's an, you know, high school senior. If she's going to have a, a spritzer or whatever they drink in high school once in a while, um, I just want her to do that responsibly and not put herself or anyone else at risk. And I feel like that, that worked really well for me so far. That's good. Yeah. And we have a really, really good, I think we have a really, really good open relationship, which is, you know, something that I cherish. Okay. And what about boys? <clears throat> well, I have a stepson and I just don't understand him at all. <laughs> I really don't have a very close relationship with the girls and he's just very different. He's very independent. He's very loving though. He's a very loving, loving kid and he loves old people and dogs. Like he's a good soul. Um, but we have just a different relationship yeah. and I, and he's like, and I don't, I, and I don't worry about him as much cause he's a guy. Right. Yeah. What about boys that would, um, come around and want to hang out with the, the girls at your house? That gave me an immense amount of anxiety, and more than once, I'm like, if I see you horizontal on any pieces of furniture, you will not be invited back to my home. You're expected to remain vertical at all times here. Like, that, be respectful. You can't make out with my kid on the sofa. Yeah, like all the doors are open. and Yeah. And, no, no, no. Did, you're not going upstairs to your room. Did no, you have to you're like, not doing that. Did you have the shotgun out and, like, polish it no, or have your husband no. just with the guns displayed or, I mean <laughs> – <laughs> How does that work? No, but that's probably a good idea. No, I didn't. But we had lots, we had lots of talks, and that goes sometimes that goes backwards to I'm like, listen, this is between you and God. Quit thinking about what I would want you to do, and think about what God want you to do. This is your body, and so what you know, your body is a temple. What would God want you to do with your body? And then later I'm like, no, I assure you, that's not what God wants you to do with your body. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they're kids, and they're gonna make mistakes and you know a lot of times they're like oh remember when you told me not to do that and I did it oh now I see why you told me not to do that but you know they're kids I can remember my dad telling me how to drive and then when I actually drove I'd make a mistake and he'd be like didn't I tell you not to do that and I'm like yeah but you gotta drive and that's how kids are right like you can tell them not to do stuff but sometimes you just gotta do it and you hate that because you don't want them to you don't want them to suffer in any way you don't want them to have pain and Oh, it's terrible. But unfortunately, they have to do a little bit of that or they won't learn. Yeah, they got to have these little failures in life to understand. Yes. Yeah, and you can't carry them to the finish line, John. Like, if they're going to fail second grade, you've got to let them fail second grade because if you don't let them fail early, the the failures get really, really big later. So you can never carry your kid off off the finish line. Very early, you've got to let them – you can help them, but you've got to let them live with the consequences that they have. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I'm not calling the science teacher in second grade and be like, what? You gave my child. You're like, no, if my child deserves an F, give them an F. Like, let's let them learn that in second grade. Let's let them feel that. Like, hey, you didn't turn in your homework. So let's let them feel the consequence of that. 
And they're like, oh my gosh, not very many parents say that. I'm like, no, I want, I want them to know, have the consequences of not doing their work or, or whatever. Yeah. Again, they have to have their own little failures. Yes. Maybe someday they can grow up to uh, write a book about them. Maybe they will. And maybe it'll be made into a movie or something. So you never know. I don't think my children have as many failures of, as I do, John. But oh. so I, hope they don't, I hope they don't write a book about failures. Don't be because... so hard on yourself now. <laughs> okay. So it's the book of failures. It's we're all a mess. What's it's the... okay. Yeah. And uh, those can be found anywhere. Books can be found, I'm sure. Or Amazon, which is where everybody goes anyway. Right? Yeah. Or Barnes & Noble or Walmart. Not walmart.com. BarnesandNoble.com. Some of my books are in Barnes and Noble, and that's like the most exciting thing in the whole world to go and see your book in the bookstore. But they're not in in all. I think Barnes and Noble they just look at like what's selling well, and then they yeah select accordingly. It. Sure. Yeah, exactly. But we can find your books in Bar- Barnes and Noble. Um, online and in some of the bookstores, and on Amazon, and on Walmart, and I, I don't know. I think anywhere you buy books. Yeah. Awesome. And yeah. is there another book uh, coming down the road? No, not right now because I'm um, working on my show and some other stuff. And we can find your show and other stuff you're working on at amylyle.me. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Or you can find the show in the Burbs, the UI Media website, or you can find it on Facebook on um, in the Burbs with Amy and Gina or on YouTube in the Burbs with Amy and Gina. Awesome. Okay, Amy. Well, thanks a bunch for your time. I'm glad we finally got connected. Thank you so much. Good luck with those three girls. Yeah, thanks. I think I'm going to need a lot of luck. (laughs) Have a good night. But tenacity would be a a good player too, though, right? Tenacity, you're going to need that. And prayers. Okay, well, please please pray for us too. (laughs) Okay, I will. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind Podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe. And, for a complete transcript of this episode, connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.